So as you guys see in your bulletin, we're going to be looking at the first three Psalms tonight. So please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 1. Oftentimes, the way that we think of the Psalms, the way that we read the Psalms, we look at them as kind of standalone poems with little relation to one another. You know, we know that it's all the Word of God and they all have particular themes. Some of them, you know, are bunched together. We know the Psalms of Ascent and and things like that. But oftentimes, typically, most of the time, the way that we think of the Psalms, we sort of cherry pick through them. We'll pick one that we like and we'll read it and we'll be encouraged by it. But we very, very rarely think of them in their relationship to one another. The book of Psalms as a whole And yet throughout church history, going back even to Augustine, there have been those who have sought to understand the way in which the Psalms uh, relate to one another, the unity of the Psalms and the, uh, the significance of the order of the Psalms. And so instead of reading it as sort of disjointed, you know, collection of poems, reading it rather as a complete collection that's been intentionally arranged in a particular way in which to, for the purpose of highlighting uh, particular themes with a unified message. So there have been those throughout history who have sought to understand the book of Psalms in this way. And there's no dogmatic consensus. Um, there's ongoing study and research and scholarship in this area. Um, you know, scholars will look at, you know, various, various different criteria of how to arrange the Psalter. They'll look at the lyrical and poetic nature of some of the Psalms. They'll look at the thematic elements of others. They'll look at kind of the covenantal structure of the Psalms. There's a lot of ways that scholars will, uh, seek to arrange the Psalter, but the thesis of many is that the ordering of the Psalms is not random. This is all just a little bit of background information. We're not getting deeply into this tonight. Um, but for all of us, we should understand whether we, you know, fully accept the, the idea that the Psalms are, you know, there is a significance to their order or not. What we should understand is, first of all, the inspiration of the Psalms by God and their delivery to us by God in his providence are certainly not random. And so it's certainly not unlikely that there's a purpose to the order of the Psalms, that they fit together as a unified whole composition. And for us, we should desire to kind of delve into this mystery and understand it better. One consensus that many scholars have come to around this question of, you know, the significance of the Psalms in their order is that Psalms 1 and 2 can be seen as a unit that serve as a prologue to the rest of the Psalter. And there's reasons for this in the Hebrew. There's, um, you know, they break it down based on the words and the syllables even that the two, they work together poetically and thematically as a single unit, if you want to look at them that way. Uh, also, the first two Psalms are anonymous. We don't know who wrote them, and they deal with these kind of large-scale themes um, in Scripture. 
And immediately following the first two Psalms, though, you have this string of Psalms that are written by David, and we know the context in which they're written. They're written in a particular time and place with an author whom we know, dealing with specific experiences and concrete events. And so when you take the first two Psalms together, they lay out some major recurring themes that are going to keep showing up in the rest of the Psalms, and also themes that uh, begin to paint a picture of the great hope presented to us in the Psalms. Psalms 1 and 2 introduce to us the hopes and the expectations of Israel. And for us as New Covenant Christians living in light of the work of Christ, we understand that the hopes and the expectations of Israel are realized in Jesus Christ. And so for us, that vision that they saw vaguely and in shadow, we see crystallized as a certain clear hope for the future. So the first two, if we see those as a prologue that introduced these themes, that introduced this hope and these expectations, you then take Psalm 3, which would kind of be the, you know, the first Psalm proper. It's like chapter 1 after a preface. And there we see a depiction of these themes, these expectations, but in a historical context. And so... Psalm 3, which we're going to look at and see tonight, I'm just kind of laying out the direction that we're going. Psalm 3 takes the themes, the large-scale principles laid out in the first two psalms, and it applies it in a way that shows how God works his purposes, not in this abstract world. It's not an ideology. It's not the way that these idealists think of things where everything works perfectly in your mind. Psalm 3 shows us how God takes these themes and these principles, not in the abstract, but he works them out in a concrete way through real people in real history in real life. It's not this utopian daydream that scripture presents us. The Bible reveals to us concrete reality, a God who doesn't work in the abstract, but works through real people in real time with real events. And so if we seek to understand the Psalms as a cohesive, ordered collection, it can help us to appreciate and apply what God is seeking to communicate to us, and it can help us to understand the Psalms in their context according to, you know, what did Israel, the the original recipients of this poetry, what did they understand the Psalms to be communicating, and how does that apply to us in real life? I think far too often... We look at the Psalms almost as like emotional support, and they have that. The psalm, There's great hope and great comfort. You're dealing with real pain and anguish. But sometimes we can just look at them as, you know, when I'm feeling down, I'll read some Psalms, and that helps me to feel better. As opposed to what are the glorious promises, what's the hope, what are the expectations laid out in the Psalms? So. Read with me now Psalms 1 through 3. And just so you all know, tonight, this isn't a permanent switch or anything, I'm going to be reading out of the Legacy Standard Bible. And the reason why I'm doing that tonight is because I like that it uses the name of God. It uses Yahweh instead of Lord. And uh, I just think that for our sermon tonight, where we're talking about kingdom and covenant, uh, I wanted that. So... That's why it's going to be a little different. So beginning in Psalm 1. 
How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree, firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. But the wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not rise in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate on a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord mocks them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, You are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. So now, O kings, show insight. Take warning, O O judges of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. O Yahweh, how my adversaries have become many. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. I was calling to Yahweh with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for Yahweh sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who all around have set themselves against me. Arise, O Yahweh, save me, O my God. For you have struck all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Your blessing be upon your people. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would please bless this evening and the teaching of your word be with me, that I would bring it forth with accuracy and faithfully. Lord, I pray that you would please help all of us to come to a deeper understanding of your word. I pray that your spirit would enlighten us, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So immediately, in Psalms 1 and 2, we're introduced to major themes that are going to recur throughout the rest of the Psalter, and really themes that are very prevalent in all of Scripture. And those are the themes of law and kingdom. So immediately highlighted in the Psalms is the centrality of the law of God and the reign of God over all the earth. Those are the first two major things that hit us when we open up the Psalter. And also, The first two Psalms serve to present to us a great divide between the righteous and the wicked, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, those two groups that God has put enmity between from uh, since the time of the fall that continues until the time of the consummation. And so in Psalm 1, 
the primary theme is holiness. And we know that holiness refers to um, separation, division, a right division between what is set apart and what is common. And so the first psalm deals with holiness. It's the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the way of blessing and the way of cursing. It's laid out for us in Psalm 1. And the dividing line, according to the scripture, is the law. Obedience to the covenant word of God is the way of blessing, and it's the mark of the man of God. The mark of the blessed man is that he obeys the law of God. And so the law is immediately at the very start set before us as that measuring stick and the dividing line between the righteous and the wicked. And it unequivocally asserts the goodness of God's law and the high place that it needs to hold in the life of God's people, that the law is definitional to obeying God. It is definitional of the people of Yahweh. They obey his law. It's the way of life. It's the ordering principle for those who are in the covenant. And again, I I mentioned that the first two Psalms, they introduce us to themes that recur throughout the rest of the Psalter. And we know, even off the top of our heads, we can think of the centrality of this theme, the goodness of God's law. Think of Psalm 19, the the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Or of course, Psalm 119, the longest Psalm in the entire Psalter, that, oh, how I love your law. It's a lamp unto, unto my feet and a light unto my path. Throughout the Psalms, This theme, the goodness, the blessedness of God's law recurs again and again. That the law is truly the way to blessing. Obedience to the law leads to blessing. And the psalmist in Psalm 1 is not afraid to make this assertion. He says, how blessed is the man who whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on it day and night. He's not shy in asserting that obedience to the law leads to blessing. And the reality is that God designed the world in such a way that even after the fall, generally speaking, obedience to the law of God leads generally to blessing. You can think of, even as just one example, God's law prohibiting adultery. We know that if a man and a woman get married and stay married, they remain faithful to one another, even if they're not Christians, even if they're not trusting in Christ and obeying God, the fact that they are acknowledging God's law and remaining faithful in their marriage, not committing adultery, that leads to blessing in that family. Not perfect blessing, not, you know, it's, it's not works righteousness, doesn't make them right before God, but it results in blessing and in blessing in a community and even, you know, on the larger scale, the nation, if that's the norm. So we can see just ordinarily obedience to God's law leads to blessing because that's the way that God designed the world. God created the world to function in accord with his law. And so we should not see the law as so many of us do at times as a burden to be removed, but rather 
We see God's law as a priceless blessing to be cherished and something that we as God's people have been entrusted with and we have been charged with presenting an obedient way of life, a blessed life to the world. And so the world should be able to look at God's people and see that when we walk in God's law, when we walk in obedience and the Lord blesses us because of that, they see that and they should see that this is how God designed for all people to live in the world. God's people are set apart to be a picture to the world of blessedness because we are the people who acknowledge and seek to conform to his law. And we see these blessings even in the language that the psalmist uses to describe the law keeper. If you look at verse verse 3, He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And whatever he does, he prospers. You see that language, the description of the law keeper. And he, he describes him as a tree planted firmly by streams of water. And so you picture those deep roots that go down that are constantly fed by the stream. It bears its fruit. If you picture a strong oak tree or a cedar, something that is immovable. It brings to mind strength and vitality, longevity. It brings to mind consistency. As I mentioned, immovability, effectiveness, potency, power. These things all come from obedience to God's established order, obeying his law, conforming to his design. It leads directly to this kind of strength and potency in the world. We even read in the call to worship from Isaiah, and he talks about that, you know, the people of God in the kingdom are going to have, you know, long lives like trees. Um, and so it gives that sort of picture. The person who obeys God's law is blessed in that way. There's that picture of strength. But another mistake that we tend to make, not only do we sometimes see God's law as a burden or we want to kind of get out from under it? We also make the mistake of assuming that God's law is just for God's people. It's only for those who are trusting in God, who are in covenant with God. But we see even in the first Psalm that this is not so. And the reason we see this because the contrast that is made is between the righteous and the wicked. And the thing that defines both of them is their relationship to God's law. So the blessed man, the righteous man, is defined by his love and obedience to the law of God. And so on the other side, the way that you define the wicked man is his disobedience to the law of God. The wicked are defined by their sin. They are defined by lawlessness. And so by definition, they do not obey God's law. And so you see the law is that marker on both sides, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, the ex, the, the thing that the visible separation of them is the law of God, their relationship to the law of God. And so the wicked, those who are outside of the covenant are nevertheless expected and required to obey God's law, but the fact that they don't shows that they're outside the covenant. I hope that makes sense. And so the result of wickedness is, of course, the opposite of blessedness. Lawlessness is the way of cursing. To disregard and to disobey God's law inevitably leads to curse and to death. God is the God of life. 
His law is the way of life. And so to disregard, to disobey, to ignore God's law and to walk outside of it is the way of death and the way of curse. And just like we saw, the imagery that the psalmist uses to describe the blessed man, the law keeper, and we see what that communicated, strength and vitality, the same is true for the lawless man. It is said of him in verse 4 that they are like chaff with the wind drives away, that dust that comes off of wheat where it just you toss it up in the air and it's gone in an instant. And so what does that bring to mind? Unlike the tree, it's like the opposite of the tree. The chaff, it's rootless. It doesn't bear any fruit. It's absolutely worthless. There's no longevity. It has no purpose whatsoever. It's there and it's gone. It has no power. It's weak. That's the description of the person who ignores the law of God, who walks in the way of cursing, weakness, death. And so the first psalm, the first part of the prologue to the Psalter, we open up with the law as the measuring stick. The law is the dividing line. It divides the righteous and the wicked, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and it determines their respective destinies, blessedness or cursing. The law opens up the Psalter as central. It's an important theme in the whole, the whole book of Psalms and the whole of Scripture. So the second portion of the prologue, Psalm 2, has a similar theme, but it gives it to us on a broader scale. So Psalm 1 draws the distinction between the righteous man and the wicked man, the blessed man and the cursed man. Psalm 2 takes that same principle and applies it to nations. And so it draws that distinction between the nation whose God is Yahweh, the nation whose God is the Lord, and those nations that are in rebellion against his rule. And once again, the law and the authority of God is the dividing line between righteous and wicked nations. And so not only do individuals walk in the way of blessing or curse based on their acknowledgement of God's authority and their adherence to God's law, the same is true for nations. Nations walk in blessing or in cursed based on whether or not they are acknowledging the sovereignty of their creator over them and the validity, the binding nature of his law. And so in Psalm 1, we began with the blessed man who walks in the law. In Psalm 2, we begin with the cursed nation, the wicked nation, and we see that they meditate on a vain thing. They take counsel together to intentionally spurn God's law. It's not as if they kind of passively ignore God. It's not as if they simply don't pay attention to him, but the wicked nation intentionally conspires to disobey God's law. They know it and they disregard it. They overtly reject the authority of God and they willingly go to war with him. It says that they take their stand against Yahweh and against his anointed. They don't retreat. They don't submit. They take their stand. They line up for battle against God. And yet we're told from the start, from the very beginning, that what they're doing is vain. The psalmist says from the start that this is a lost battle, that their war that they are waging against God has absolutely no hope of succeeding. Their rebellion cannot succeed because just like the wicked man in Psalm 1, who's weak, who's like chaff, who scatters, the wicked nation is weak. It's fruitless. It is 
absolutely powerless to affect its will because it has set itself against the creator, against the sovereign, against the one who gives life and breath to all things. And so the wicked nation cannot possibly affect its will. It has no power. It can't bear fruit. And this is the reason why God responds the way he does in verse four, that he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord mocks them. He holds them in derision. The wicked pose absolutely no serious threat to God's authority or to God's purposes. The rebellion of the wicked is utterly laughable. And this is because God holds and exercises authority over all, all people and all nations, regardless of whether or not they acknowledge it. God is the creator. He holds all authority. He does his will, just like it was preached on this morning. We understand that God is a sovereign God who knows the beginning from the end, who ordains whatever comes to pass, who always does his will. The wicked can only go as far as God allows them. And so all of their efforts, all of their conspiring, all the power that the wicked can amass, all of it will result in defeat. It is all in vain. And so when the psalm says that God responds by saying, as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion on my holy mountain, the Israelite who would be reading this psalm, in his mind, it goes directly to the throne of David. It goes to the palace in Jerusalem. That's the physical picture of God's authority. But the the old covenant, the king, the physical king in Jerusalem was limited in the scope of his power. The king, even David, as powerful, as mighty, as authoritative as he was, and even Solomon, as far as his kingdom stretched, there were enemies that rose up against him. The The borders of Israel were fixed. There was only so far that King David's authority went. But God's authority, the hope of this psalm, goes far beyond the reach of the Davidic throne. Because this psalm says that the nations are the inheritance of God's king, that the ends of the earth are the possession of God's king. And so the hope is not just the throne of David, the king in Israel reigning from Mount Zion. The hope goes far beyond that. The reign of Yahweh is universal. And even though, you know, we understand that because Christ, when he ascended, said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We know who the king is to whom all authority has been given. That mystery has been revealed to us. But even in the old covenant, they knew and they understood that Yahweh was over all the nations, even if they didn't understand it as clearly to the, or to the degree that we understand it today. And this idea of the kingdom and the universal reign of God is another theme that runs throughout the Psalter. If you guys want to check out later, Psalms 24, 72, 82, 110, those are all Psalms that deal with the reign of God, not just in Israel, but looking forward to reigning over the entire earth. And so the great hope of God's people, the hope of biblical religion, old covenant and new covenant, past, present, and future, is that God, the creator, Yahweh, reigns universally over all. And so our great hope is the realization and the actualization of this universal reign being recognized by all people, every knee bowing, every tongue confessing that Yahweh, God, the triune God 
is over all. And this reality, this hope is promised from the very beginning of the Psalter. And once again in Psalm 2, just like we saw in Psalm 1, contrast is central and is prominent. The war between the two seeds, out of the woman and that of the serpent, exists not just in individuals, but it exists among nations. Those who submit to God's authority as king and those who don't. And so on the one side, you have those who seek to usurp God's authority, those who are conspiring together to break out from under God's law, to reject him, to dethrone him, and to take his seat for themselves. That's the wicked. They not only ignore God's law, but they try to assume God's authority, reign in his place. That's the one side. They want to establish themselves as supreme rulers instead of God. But then on the other side, you have, yes, the those who obey the law, but specifically the anointed king. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, on my holy hill. And look at the difference. The wicked are usurpers. They want to undermine God's authority and seize power for themselves. But of the son, it says... Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. See, on the one side, the wicked want to illegitimately assume authority. On the other side, the son, the true heir of all the nations, assumes authority by request, by asking and submitting to the will and the purpose and the decree of his father. And so you see the one side, it's illegitimate. They want to seize control. The son requests his inheritance and receives it. Ask of me and I will give you the nations. So the way to blessedness as a nation is for the kings to recognize the authority of the supreme king. They are exhorted to kiss the son to acknowledge the reign of God, the authority of God over them, and to submit to his law. And just like in Psalm 1, where the end of the wicked is curse, destruction, perishing, the end of the wicked nation in Psalm 2 is the same thing. Judgment, shattered with a rod of iron, dashed to pieces like a potter's vessel. And so at the very center of the Psalms prologue, if you look at Psalms 1 and 2 together, you see these themes, obedience to God's law, acknowledgement of God's authority, the hope of God's kingdom going forth, of his blessing on his people, and of the judgment of his enemies. That lays out, it kind of orients us for the rest of the Psalter. It doesn't all fit exactly into these two categories, but these are major themes throughout Psalms, throughout all of Scripture The law of God, the authority of God, blessing for God's people, judgment on God's enemies. That's consistent throughout Scripture and throughout the Psalms. So now turning our attention to Psalm 3. The first Psalm, following this prologue, applies these themes concretely in a sinful, fallen reality. So it's very easy for us to take Psalms like Psalms 1 and 2, just like many people take their ideologies, where it all seems to work out very well on paper. We have this vision of the way things should be, and if only everything in the real world worked out the way that our vision did. It's easy for us to look at the first two Psalms and have this sort of, you know, 
over-realized expectation of what this world is going to be like or apply these very rigidly in a legalistic way. But then we're thrown into Psalm 3 and we see how these, these purposes of God, how they prevail, but they do so in the realities of a fallen world. So unlike the first two, Psalm 3 gives us both the author and the context. And so not just the context of the historical circumstances in which that psalm is written, but the context of its placement in the Psalter help us to better understand the message and the application of Psalm 3. So we're told that Psalm 3 was written while David was on the run from Absalom. And we don't have time to go into the story tonight, but I think you all know David, uh, his son Absalom, gathered a following, assumed authority in Jerusalem, and was David was forced to, ex- to, uh, to run. He was forced into exile on the run from Jerusalem. Absalom had ascended to the throne, and this was a direct consequence of David's sin concerning Bathsheba and Uriah, his adultery with Bathsheba, his murder of Uriah, and God said to David explicitly that the troubles that were going to arise in his household as a consequence of this sin. And so David, the fact that he is cast off the throne, that he is exiled and on the run, is a direct consequence of his disobedience to God. David walked in the way of the wicked. David disobeyed God's law. He ignored God's authority. And he did all of this as the king, as the head of his people, and the one who overall was charged with leading the people in humble submission to God's law. As the head of the nation, he was to lead the rest of the people in obedience to God. And so now, in this historical context, you have Absalom, who is a usurper, who is an illegitimate ruler. A man who does not acknowledge God's authority is sitting on the throne and established as king in the nation. And so in the prologue, you have laid out the centrality of obedience to the law, that it's necessary to obey the law to obtain blessing. And then the warning of what happens to those who don't submit and what happens to nations who reject God's authority. And here, the psalm immediately following, we have Israel, God's covenant nation, having its greatest king, absolutely failing to walk in obedience, failing to walk in the way of blessing, failing to live up to what's depicted for us in the prologue. And now Israel is in danger of being this cursed nation. You have a king on the throne who's rebellious against God. Isn't Israel going to be dashed to pieces with the rod of iron? Aren't they going to be shattered like the potter's vessel? Aren't they going to be like chaff cast and scattered through the wind? Because that should be the expectation. David has betrayed the covenant law. He's walked in the way of curse. He has earned wrath for himself, and he's led the nation into a place where it deserves wrath because now they're under a king that does not submit to God's authority. And yet, the craziest thing about Psalm 3 is that in this situation that seems desperate, that if you look just on the face of it, it seems as if there is no hope. David writes a psalm, not of mourning, not of despair, but a psalm of great hope. And his hope is in not himself, but in the mercy and the faithfulness of God to his people. In verse 2, We see David's enemies taunting him, saying there is no salvation for him in God. And you can understand why they would say that. 
because David has abandoned God's law. David has disobeyed. He has set himself against God in that way. He has walked in the way of curse. And so that makes sense that that's the expectation. He spurned the way of blessing. He's disregarded God. He has earned wrath. And yet David continues to boldly trust in God because God is merciful and God is faithful to his people. See, in a fallen and sinful world, none can truly be said to ever earn blessing because all of us are guilty of disobeying God. And so the only hope for sinful man is God's mercy. And this is where David's hope lies. We know from scripture, we see that David recognized the sinfulness of his actions and he repented of them. When his sin was brought to his attention by Nathan the prophet, David mourned over it and repented of it. We have Psalms 32 and 51, which are an expression of David's repentance of his sin and of his confidence that God would rescue and redeem him. And that confidence was rooted not in his own ability, not in his own uh, his own efforts to make up for his sin, to atone for his sin, but it was according to God's mercy. His hope is fully and completely in God. And you see that once again in the language of the psalm, that God is his shield, his glory, the one who lifts my head, the one who answers our call, the one who sustains, the one who defends, the one who protects, the one who saves us. His hope is absolutely in God. It is all on God for David to be saved. He has absolutely no hope in his own abilities, even though David is a strong warrior king. David has slain his ten thousands. David has conquered the Philistines. He is a mighty king, and yet Yet his hope is absolutely all in God, not in his own abilities. And his hope foundationally is rooted in God's promises and his covenant word. If you go back to Genesis 15, when God made his covenant with Abraham, God said to Abraham, I am your shield. And that's exactly what David says of God, that you are a shield around me. God, when he made that covenant with Abraham, vowed to shield his people from the wrath that they deserve. And this is exactly what David sets his hope on, that God is going to shield him from wrath. Now, none of this negates the consequences of sin. It's not as if we read this and we understand God's mercy, and then we think that the warnings of Psalms 1 and 2 don't apply, that actually God's not going to judge the wicked, that actually they're not like chaff, they're not set for destruction, they're not going to be shattered. The consequences of sin are still real. David is um, experiencing the concrete, in real life, consequences of sin. And in this very psalm, David recognizes that God is going to judge the enemy. He says, God, strike my enemies on the cheek, dash, uh, shatter the, the teeth of the wicked. He recognizes the judgment of God is real. Lawlessness really does bring about curse. It really does bring wrath and judgment. Absolutely. Those warnings stand. But those who love the law of God, because that's what it says in Psalm 1, right? That the blessed man is the one who delights in the law of Yahweh, who meditates on his law. And yes, who of course obeys his law. Those who love God's law though, We don't obey perfectly. We don't always succeed in obeying. 
yet we will still be blessed because of God's mercy. And those who love God's law repent of their sin because they love God, because they love his law. That's the mark of those who love the law. We strive and we aspire to obey it. And we understand that when we disobey it, it is going to bring consequences. But out of love for the law, when we disobey, because we love God, because we delight in his word, we repent. We bring that to the Lord. The wicked, the ones who receive judgment, are the ones who, like the kings of Psalm 2, set themselves against the Lord, who disobey God and do not seek forgiveness, who do not repent, who hate his law, and so who intentionally disobey it again and again, or who, when they do disobey it, feel no remorse, no repentance, and no desire to change. We are called not to trust in ourselves, but to trust in God's goodness, his love, and his mercy, and his promises. And so the themes of the Psalms, obedience of God to God's law, the vindication of God's kingdom, these things we understand don't come about by man's efforts, but by God's mercy. That's how it works in real life. And then God's humble people receiving mercy and God judging those who don't humble themselves before him. That's how God is going to bring about the vindication of his kingdom and the blessedness of his law being obeyed. It's not through man's efforts. That's the thing that sets biblical religion apart from everything else. It's not about man's efforts. God brings about his purposes according to his mercy. Mercy is the thing that we need to understand. And all of this, of course, we know points forward to Christ. Christ is the man of law who obeys perfectly. He's the anointed king who crushes every enemy. And he's our merciful, faithful covenant head who represents us before the Father. Christ is the one that we serve and the one that we obey. And even though we continually fail in doing this, we continually sin, we still like David, suffer consequences for those sins. And yet, you know, we get that the consequences of our sins are kind of like a taste of the curse and the wrath that our sin brings about. But none of this, even our failure to obey, our suffering of consequences, our taste of that curse, none of that makes our trust in Christ vain. Because it's not about our efforts to bring uh, God's purposes to pass. It's not about how rigidly we can conform ourselves. It's always about Christ's perfect finished work and God's mercy on his people. We trust in the finished work of Christ. We trust in the sealed and completed covenant faithfulness and promises of Jesus. We trust that Jesus himself shielded us from the wrath that we deserve on the cross. Just like God promised to be a shield to his covenant people, that promise that David trusted him, we trust that Jesus actually himself shielded us from wrath by absorbing it on himself. And we trust that Jesus will restore us, that he will lift up our heads, that he will save us by his mercy. And that ultimately Christ and his kingdom will be totally vindicated. 
But the story, the theme, the, the purpose of biblical religion, it's all incomplete if we don't understand mercy. The glorious display of God's mercy is what actually brings these things to pass in real life because we're not living in a perfect, idealized world. We're living in a sin-cursed world that requires God to display his mercy. And the amazing thing is that even though our sin, we hate our sin and it brings consequences, it really does, Yet our sin reveals and emphasizes God's patience and his loving kindness. The fact that God will not abandon his people, but will forgive, vindicate, and he will ultimately make perfectly righteous his kingdom citizens. And so this ultimately is the hope presented throughout the Psalms. That God's perfect law and blessing will be perfectly realized in his perfect kingdom through the merciful redemption of his people and the just judgment of his enemies. That's the theme of the Psalter. That is the theme. That's, that's the message of scripture. That is the gospel of the kingdom that God is going to bring perfect blessing and obedience to pass. He is going to consummate his kingdom through the merciful redemption of his people and the just judgment of his enemies. That's the message, and this comes only through Christ, who in his death secures mercy for his people, who through his resurrection guarantees judgment on his enemies, who through his ascension establishes his kingdom, and who through the lawful obedience of his kingdom people by the power of his Holy Spirit advances his kingdom in real life through real history. And that's what we are tasked with doing by the power of the Spirit, advancing the kingdom of Christ through repentance, through obedience, with faith that God is going to bring his purposes to pass.